Director of the Oregon Justice Resource Center. And I'm Eric Dietrich. I'm General Counsel at the Oregon Office of Public Defense Services. And this is Trailblazing Justice. Well, welcome back. Today is February 24th, and we're back uh, with another podcast this week. And in large part because uh, Beatrix, our new producer, is keeping the trains on the wheels for us. And we have a really great guest uh, this week, um, Atul, uh, who is the director, executive director of public accountability. And he will be joining us talking about um, uh, legal doctrines that prevent accountability of public officials. And you know that will segue, will segue into that conversation, I think, pretty nicely from a conversation we hope to have today about how public defenders act as, um, as real important actors in police accountability. Uh, but as we do every week, we'll start off with some news. So Eric, what, there's been a lot of news this week. So what, what of all the news, I mean, not, notwithstanding that last night, Russia is at war with Ukraine, um, which is, you know, outside of Oregon and outside the country, obviously, but what, what's been capturing your attention? Well, there's also the fact that we got a tiny dusting of snow this morning, which is always news in the Portland metro area. But, um, you know, I think the thing that hit, the media over the weekend that got a lot of attention um, and continues to to this day is the the shooting in northeast Portland that happened Saturday night where there was uh, some sort of a rally. And I think um, several people were, were shot and one person died. And, you know, I don't want to go into the specifics of that because, you know, given what we fund, I mean, the person is presumed innocent. They have a right to trial. And there's a whole process that'll play out. But what I found interesting about the story in terms of, kind of in terms of what we talked about last week with Alice was the framing piece. And I know there's been some discussion and some criticism of how that, the news story of that event first was reported um, by law enforcement and how it was reported by the media in relying upon what law enforcement had described the event as. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's been a series of articles that have come out because, you know, how the city and the police responded to it and sort of what were the initial, at least circumstances that were understood, how the facts were, um, how the facts were shared or the information wasn't shared. I think was really revealing sort of illustrative of the city and the Portland Police Bureau, right? I think um, you could clearly see bias, uh, a level of um, resistance of wanting to be transparent. Um, and, you know, the the kind of harm that happened, what, there was no recognition as to um, that the, the, there was a broader community harm in this instance. Like it was an attack on protesters, it was an attack on protesters protesting for racial justice, and that this was a sort of a a circumstance and a condition that was created by a lot of a lot of actions and events or inactions by the greater sort of leadership uh, of this city. And, um, you know, it all came to bear. And I think this is a thing I think a lot of us have been really 
worried about is um, continued violence against uh, people who are standing up for racial justice um, and Black Lives Matter and, and Black Lives Matter and um, and you know to be harmed to put in harm be harm in harm's way. So you know I think there's a lot to unpack with this one one sort of this this issue that's been playing out of this case and these this act of violence. But yeah, I mean a complicated set of factors. It is, and um, you know. This happened, at, as you described, at, a, at a, a rally, a protest. It was there were many people there, and I think one of the benefits you you are seeing is that because so many people were there, they were aware of the importance of how this issue was framed and took really affirmative measures from the jump to make sure that this was described in as accurate of a way as possible. But I think for the conversation we're going to have later about police accountability and public defense. That framing always matters. It matters for the media, but it matters in terms of how law enforcement builds a criminal case. And, you know, that's one of the roles of defense attorney is to do the investigation and make sure the way that law enforcement is framing or describing issues is true. And um, here, I think, because there were so many people there, um, you know, concerned and aware of the importance of making sure this was reported, that's why you saw um, finally, you know, kind of corrective action taken by the city and the media to start reframing how they describe the event. But not, in, not entirely, you know, there's no sort of ownership or recognition of the misreporting or misinformation or the lack of information that's been going out. It's all, you know, largely been defended. I mean, but for a community and the, 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 the people that were there, the community of protesters that were there, um, that, you know, I don't know if we, we really would have had a true understanding of like what happened, you know, um, it was a lot of that information that surfaced because of, of those actions. And I think that too is, um, that speaks to a larger thing that has emerged over the past couple of years. I think there's like a, there is like a group of uh, multi-layered sort of, uh, I would say multi-dimensional community, like from protesters and community activists sort of on the streets to civil rights organizations to um, you know, comms people that are all, I think, using their skills and in better choreography to um, kind of push back against these things, and um, and I think that was the nice thing. At least one of the positives that we saw um, over the past week is you know this real giant pushback against the city and the city's narrative. So, yeah, I, I think like hopefully maybe next week we'll come back to this issue um, and talk about it a little bit more deeply because we could spend like a whole hour just like talking about sort of the dimensions to to what happened. Yeah. Um, you know, I think for me, the, the news story that kind of that um, that parallels this because we're talking about like law enforcement and police is, um, you know, it's sort of like the intersection again of kind of like sports and social justice is um, Kaepernick uh, uh, announced this past week that he will start providing um, independent autopsies for individuals who are killed by police and um, I, you know, I just think it's, this is one thing that we haven't talked about in depth, but the, um, the practice of medical examiners and forensic sort of pathology, what is it? Medical examiners, I forget like the official name of it. Um, but, uh, but like, it's just corrupt and, um, having these medical independent medical examiners or autopsies being done, I think is critically important, um, in these, not only these cases, but in a lot of cases, but I think in this, it, it's, it's going to be it, it, it's so important. No, it's across the country. There aren't consistent standards here. Um, it's different state to state. 
you have um, the medical examiners like you're talking about, um, you know, that in some states require certain certification and documentation, others do not. You have really well-trained forensic pathologists, but the bottom line is, you know, kind of the first person after one of these events in which there's a homicide who has legal authority to conduct the investigation and draw and make conclusions about what happened really has a ton of authority over the trajectory about what happens for that person who um, is deceased. And the lack of, you know, real standards and certification processes from state to state, it's really interesting that he's chose this as an area to step in. Yeah, I mean, I also think it's, um, you know, we've talked about previously sort of this asymmetric power dynamic where the state um, basically is wielding all this power against an individual once they've sort of interacted with the system or in touch with like state actors of the system, whether it's law enforcement and prosecutors, um, you know, the Department of Corrections, um, community corrections, whatever it is, there's this kind of command or dominating control kind of power dynamic that exists. And I think in these instances, like, you know, I don't know anyone that's personally been killed by the police or like have a loved one that's been killed by the police. But thinking that you have to rely then on the very same sort of power to, to somehow be an honest broker and tell you the truth, like, even if they are, can you actually even, I mean, like, there's, there's already a natural inclination not to trust it, because it, it's the same people that committed the harm the same people that aren't believing you, that won't prosecute police, you know, so on and so forth. So, um, so having that ind someone independent, truly independent, um, I think is, you know, hopefully will allow uh, some comfort or relief to family members who experience that, that tragedy. Oh, and I mean, we see in Oregon too, how, you know, not all death investigations are the same to the A, symmetrical power dynamic you're talking about. You know, we've seen it firsthand in Multnomah County when, you know, there is uh, a person, you know, who's killed and there's probable cause to believe uh, a crime may be convicted. The DA takes that case through the grand jury process. But when the alleged, you know, possible defendant, the person responsible for the death is a uniformed police officer, the process is very different. And, the district attorney's office historically, you know, brings in police experts um, in front of the grand jury that would almost be like a defense expert if the case were to go to trial as a way to present their case to the grand jury to see if an indictment should be brought. And they've treated those cases completely differently for reasons um, that are not required by law. They just, it's, it's how they choose to investigate and consider bringing charges in these cases. Well, you know, not too easy topics for news, but, uh, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I think we'll see more about uh, or hear more about, you know, the shooting that happened last weekend and, um, you know, for transparency, our organizations involved in, you know, advocacy around that um, and we'll continue to be over the, the upcoming days and, you know, weeks and, you um, so yeah, maybe next week we'll be able to talk more, more openly or candidly uh, about this, um, about what happened. And then, yeah, I mean, I think another, uh, an interesting topic to discuss down, down the road would be like forensics and forensic pathology was like the term that I was trying to recall. I was about to say it, but then I was a little nervous saying it in front of, uh, 
you know, in front of other people and getting it wrong. So. I completely understand. <laughs> it's like the Latin words in law. Like I, I sometimes <laughs> like I just avoid them all together because I, you know, don't know if I'm saying it right or if it's the right term or whatever. But, um, but you know, I think, um, yeah, that would be a really interesting conversation to have to explore more like the, the, the practice of forensics and, you know, how that's its own sort of um, garbage universe that sort of aids in prosecution and convictions of individuals. Yeah, no, it's true. And I can tell you specifically when it comes to child deaths, there are, there's a whole industry of how those, what we call shaken baby cases um, get, get brought and get litigated. And there is um, a lot of junk science out there that people rely on. Yeah. I was a bit disappointed because, um, you know, as a, as a South Asian, Dr. Sanjay Gupta is like this well-known, you know, like I think like every South Asian sort of mom's dream of being like a doctor and like someone famous. And he just did like this whole series on like uh, the shaken baby syndrome kind of um, attacks on it by like the Innocence Project and other, you know, criminal offense organizations as um, inaccurate. And that, uh, you know, it, it was, it was kind of stunning. Um, so anyway. now I need to watch this. <laughs> yeah. it, it came out, I think a little while ago. Um, I didn't watch it myself, but I, on some listservs I was on, uh, basically uh, had highlighted the fact that he was misconstruing the challenges against that 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 practice. Um, so segueing into like the 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 more substantive conversation and talking about the criminal legal system, I know like last week we talked a little bit about the structures of public defense and the crisis that's happening, and part of the what we talked about is the importance of funding public defense and having it be like a rob robustly supported is the fact that public defenders act as a prophylactic against sort of misconduct, abuse, uh, illegal sort of conduct by prosecutors and police. And so I wanted to touch upon that a little bit more um, this week. And just, you know, Eric, I think like having to walk through a case from the moment someone's charged with a crime and there's law enforcement involved, there's law enforcement investigation, you know, I think it would be helpful for, for us to kind of review and kind of think about like, what do public defenders do? Like the ideal public defender, you know, uh, kind of thinking through a case and uh, how that can be a check on like police misconduct. Yeah, no. And before I get quite there, actually, the way you framed it makes me realize it's probably helpful to talk about why we have the right to counsel because it, it goes directly to this issue was um, what we saw with criminal prosecutions and what the US government saw, and specifically what the United States Supreme Court saw coming out of specifically the South and the way criminal prosecutions were handled is what drove the US Supreme Court to declare the right to counsel in Gideon B. Wainwright. And it's about what you're talking about. It's about police accountability. It's about the way law enforcement investigations were supposedly conducted and narrated and described in the South. And so this issue of people getting access to a public defender is directly related to issues of police accountability. And the main thing the public defender does is serve as the attorney for their client. They are there to advocate on their client's um, legal interests and to be um, their go-to attorney and advocate. The secondary benefit to the public, you know, having public defenders is this check and balance on police behavior and having some check on police accountability. 
um, you know, if you are the victim of some sort of impermissible or illegal government search or seizure, um, you can always sue, you can bring a civil rights suit, you know, for damages, if you can actually prove damages and you can get a legal team together to bring that type of suit. The truth is that is just a really hard check on police accountability because the individual has to prove damages and you need to have lawyers ready to bring that suit. The way the check on police- And that's happened, after the fact. Like and that's, that's after the fact. That's after the fact. So, you know, you can have evidence excluded from a criminal case if it was obtained unconstitutionally by the police. So if there's an illegal stop, if there's an illegal search, if the interrogation was uh, conducted illegally. And so as a public defender, one of the things you're always doing is conducting your own investigation into how evidence was gathered, into how statements were gathered, and doing your own investigation of the police's investigation. So when you say investigation, I mean, I think, you know, the, and I'm just trying to contextualize this in the conversation about like the public defense crisis that's happening in Oregon. It's not you that's doing the investigation, right? I mean, it's not like you, Eric, going out and doing like investigation. So when we're talking about like support and resources for public defenders. It's not just about hiring more public defenders, but like who is doing the investigation? Like what kind of resources are you using for investigations? Well, you're, you're certainly, we have investigators. Um, you need an investigator. You need someone who has the training and skills to know how to interact with law enforcement agencies, knows how to question people, knows how to gather information. And as the attorney, as the public defender, you're working with your investigator um, to go out and, you know, take statements from witnesses, look for evidence, look for video, try to figure out if there's other sources because what you have when you're the attorney is you're reading the official report from the police. You're reading their police report. And so as the attorney, you're trying to think of, okay, here's what the police wrote in their narrative. Are there other sources of information that can shed light on whether this is true? And so those could be people, that could be video, um, it could be other physical evidence and you're directing and working with your investigator to go that, gather that information. Um, I think what's interesting, what's kind of changed over the last 10 years is just how much video is out there and particularly how much cell phone information is out there. So oftentimes your investigation goes into hiring experts who know how to manipulate that technology, whether it's video or cell phone information. Um, that could be information on the cell phone or information that can be gathered simply because the person has a cell phone that is so connected to, to the world. Um, and you're working with all of those folks too. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to go back to this idea of, you know, the police investigate, um, and, you know, this is kind of playing into, um, what we talked about with the news story, with the shooting over the weekend, they do their investigation, they show up to a scene, they do their investigation, they're, they're investigating some alleged criminal activity, um, and they create a police report. What, what, what is like, the credibility of that police report at that point. I mean, like when we hear about it, people are like, well, may think like, okay, law enforcement wrote this, uh, this, is, this must be true. You know, like there's must be some thought that went into this, but in your experience, like what is that police report really sort of like as a, as a document and like the strength of that document? So from my perspective as a public defender, that document is kind of the official narrative 
of law enforcement. Um, but it's not admissible in court. It's, you know, that, that, that it's, it's just the official narrative of the police department or whatever law enforcement agency is bringing the charges. Um, the district attorney's office will rely on it because they view law enforcement as their partners. And, you know, one of the things I think that is important to know is a district attorney is not going to or cannot or should not bring a case against a person if there was an illegal search or seizure. But they don't do an investigation in the same way the public defense does. They take the police report typically, you know, at kind of face value. And I think for those listening, I think it's important to know that, at least in my experience, there's frequently training conducted by district attorneys with, you know, law enforcement officers, keeping them updated on the law and how specifically to draft reports to document what they're doing. So when I get a police report, you know, as a public defense attorney, I'm like, okay, this is what I'm up against because I know the DAs are going to latch on to that report and that is going to be their version of the case that I have to defend my client against. And then, you know, we talked about like investigative resources for public defenders. And I think, you know, the one way that I've often heard it described and that makes sense to me is, you know, the DAs do have investigators. It's the entire law enforcement agency. It's the entire law enforcement community. Right. You know, and so like when, again, when we're talking about like asymmetric power dynamics, we're talking about like a, a, an entire law enforcement agency versus like maybe one investigator that you're working on. And so the amount of resources that go into just prosecuting or even doing a fact investigation already sort of outweighs whatever a defense investigation could do. But, you know, as you mentioned, like starting with that initial police report, you know, that's when you look at that and you start reviewing that, I mean, what are some of the, like the common questions you're going to be asking yourselves? What are the common kind of things you'll be kind of uh, approaching your investigation about? Like you talked about like legal search and seizures, like interrogation. Um, obviously those things aren't necessarily going to be clear, clear in the police report, but yeah, like can you, if you can like kind of describe that process. There's kind of a two prong approach that I think I applied and I say two prong, like it sounds scientific. I just made that up right now. But, um, you know, the first thing you're always looking at, because it matters if you're going to file a motion to suppress, you're not, you're not getting a case dismissed because there was an illegal search. What you do as a lawyer and what the law allows you to do is have specific evidence or statements suppressed. And so that's what you're doing as the attorney. You're reading the police report to say, okay, what statements are there in here, either by my client or other people? Um, or what evidence is in here, like physical evidence? Is there um, a weapon? Is there a knife? Um, it, are there, is there evidence of, of controlled substances? And if so, what? And you're looking for those statements and evidence because those are the things as the lawyer that if they were obtained illegally, you can um, move to suppress from coming into evidence in court. When I say the two-prong thing, I mean, the second thing is you're, you're reading it to try and figure out um, and you're looking at other things. I mean, the police officer certification numbers in there, you're trying to see if it's a new officer, if it's someone's been around a while. You're reading the police report for, for uh, kind of like narrative credibility. You, you know, aside from looking at the specific evidence and statements, you're just trying to see, okay, as a narrative, does this hold up? Does this even make sense? Because um, that goes into the deeper type of investigation you're going to do in the case. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... Um... So when we're talking about like misconduct or uh, abuse or things like that, so 
you know, most people understand, again, our federal constitution, you know, like the Fourth Amendment, like the search and seizure stuff, um, and, you know, the Fifth Amendment and Sixth Amendment. But actually, under Oregon's constitution, we do have our own, and we've talked about this before, like our, our own sort of parallel provisions, our Bill of Rights that protect individuals. And that's really what guides sort of the law enforcement um, uh, behaviors and actions. Like, the Court of Appeals and the Oregon State Supreme Court issue opinions all the time, like on the search and seizure provision of the Oregon State Constitution. Um, so when you're looking at these police reports and sort of the facts, I mean, that's what you're looking for, right? It's like violations based on what the case law or like what the law is at this point, right? Yeah, and you're right, you know, as a defense attorney, especially when I was practicing, um, we almost always relied exclusively on Oregon constitutional law because it was better than federal constitutional law. Um, and overwhelmingly that is still true to this day, um, particularly with the vehicle exception um, change that the Oregon Supreme Court made about a month ago. I mean, um, there just wasn't a lot of need to rely on federal constitutional law because the states was better and given the current makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court, I expect that to be true for, for a significantly uh, longer period of time. Yeah, and you know, you had mentioned like motions, like you file motions to suppress um, uh, and other types of motions, like if there was an interrogation in which was improper or illegal, right? Or if there was, as you said, search and seizure, like if someone in, in illegally entered a property or entered you know, um, a premise, um, without proper like justification or legal uh, legal means to be there or a search like a backpack or some sort of property that you had to find something. So when you file these motions, essentially, you know, what are you doing? What What is a motion? And like, what are you, question. where are you filing and what does it mean? So a motion is essentially you asking the court to do something. The attorney's asking the court to do something. So um, that's what a motion is. You're, it's a, you're asking the court, and you can move or file a motion to have the court do a number of things. You can move the court to, you know, exclude witnesses. You could, you know, move the court to dismiss the case. And there, are, when you make a motion and you're asking the court to do something, the next question from the attorney's mind is, what authority do I have to ask the court to do that? So when we're talking about police accountability, you're filing a motion and you're asking the court to suppress the evidence. And the reason you're asking the court to suppress the evidence or the statements is that they were gathered unconstitutionally. And that's the foundation upon your ask of the court. You're basically asking the court to, you know, make these findings because a constitutional provision was violated by law enforcement. Yeah. And, you know, I think like what we talked about is like the Oregon state constitution, that sort of guides, but you know, it, there it's like a paragraph, a few sentences that sort of articulate what the restrictions are on state actors. But, you know, it's the interpretation of that, that you're talking about that's actually more robust in Oregon. And, you know, the, this motion practice is like so important because you're developing a record at the trial court because if the individual loses, then you're appealing it to the court of appeals. Um, if the person like gets sentenced, convicted and sentenced, you go through like the direct appeal process up to the court of appeals and potentially up to the Oregon State Supreme Court, depending on the significance of the issue and the discretion of the Supreme Court. But it's gonna be the court's interpretation of that provision and your motions, right? That determine whether or not. So that, I mean, can you speak to like how important motion practice is for defense attorneys? 
No, you're right. And I think I know where you're going with this, but um, you know, when you file a motion and ask the court to do something, um, you're going to have a hearing on it. People are going to testify. They're going to be witnesses and you're going to make a full record in court that's recorded um, that leads the judge to, you know, ultimately make their decision um, on whether to suppress evidence or not. If you do not have a robust public defense system, if you have too few public defenders, um, you don't have that vibrant and robust motion practice, which means you don't get people at the appellate level, the appellate judges issuing opinions to establish what the rules are for the interaction uh, between police and citizenry. Um, and there are other limits on it too. You know, I know in Multnomah County in Portland, you could not litigate a motion to suppress unless you were going to trial. So um, there are local rules like that that also deter a robust suppression uh, practice from happening because not everybody may want to go to trial. One of the things that always frustrated my clients was they didn't necessarily want to go to trial. They really didn't, but they knew that the search was illegal and they felt like somebody should do something about it or at least talk about it. And I had to tell them that unless they were willing to go to trial, we weren't going to be able to have our day in court on that issue. Yeah, you know, uh, as we wrap up, you know, here, you know, the last kind of couple of questions I have for you is, you know, you know, I hope people begin to understand the importance of public defenders. But if you would say like, you know, for me, when I when I look at this and look at the role of public defenders, they're sort of the eyes and ears on the ground, seeing everyday police practice, law enforcement practices, and what's going on in that jurisdiction, and have an intimate understanding of it. And it's always kind of confused me as when we talk about police accountability, why the public defense community isn't actually brought more into that conversation about really what's going on. Um, you know, that seems to always be a gap, and I, and I can't figure out why. I don't know if it's because we're as civil rights orgs were not embracing that voice or bringing them on, or if public defenders aren't engaged. But to me, it feels like, like racial justice in the criminal justice system or the criminal legal system, police accountability. Without that PD voice, I don't think we get a complete picture of like the total scale of like police misconduct, uh, bad practices and things like that. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, they probably, I would hope they're not coming because they're not invited, but even if they were invited, they're very busy and completely overworked. But I will say it is a huge resource for information on what police are doing. I can't think of a better group of people who are more plugged into the operations of law enforcement. And, you know, they, they, they know a lot. Like when I did drug cases for a few years, I mean, it was just troubling because I knew personally, like pretty much the whole practice of, of um, law enforcement in, in the drug game and in the drug world was unconstitutional, but um, I have to go prove that in court somehow. You know, I have to be able to convince judges that, you know, all of these officers um, arresting all of these people for drug possession, that they had a real legitimate reason to search or arrest my person, you know, knowing full well how that whole world operates. It, it was very frustrating. And I think if you can get those people into those rooms, that'll be really helpful. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, we've talked just now about the importance of having like a robust public defense system and, you know, competent public defenders there to really check police accountability sort of in the moment, right, in the criminal case um, that's happening um, and being able to keep evidence out. 
But that, that doesn't actually mean police accountability in the sense of holding the police accountable. What that means is just that those illegal practices don't harm the defendant in that moment or in that case. Now, when we switch gears and we begin to try to hold police accountable, let's say in a civil rights suit, that's its own sort of complicated mess, right? That's the, sort of the other side of the coin. Like when that misconduct's discovered or that abuse is discovered, then you know, making sure it doesn't harm the defendant, that's what the public defender can do and kind of surface that those legal practices. But how do we hold people accountable? And you know, I think our guest today, if you'd like to introduce yourself, um, is a, a specialist in this area, like looking at legal doctrines in the federal courts and trying to those legal doctors that actually prevent that accountability. Um, yeah, you want to jump on and uh, introduce yourself and let us know who you are and what you do? Sure, Bob, and thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Athul Acharya. Uh, I am Executive Director of Public Accountability, uh, an Oregon nonprofit. Uh, we're collaboration with OJRC, uh, and we focus on uh, reforming and eventually, hopefully, eliminating doctrines like qualified immunity um, in the federal courts of appeals. So when you say legal doctrines um, and, you know, and holding people accountable, what do we mean by that? Like, what, what, is, what is police accountability from like a, a civil rights perspective? Like when someone files a lawsuit, what is, what, is, what is the outcome that we're looking for at that point? Yeah, so there's sort of two outcomes you're looking for. One is retrospective, one is prospective. The retrospective outcome is if, if someone files a lawsuit because a government agent, a police officer injured them, what you want is you want recompense for that injury. You wanna, um, you wanna make them whole to the extent that they can be made whole for whatever you know, uh, harm they suffered uh, at the hands of the police. Um, and then the sort of prospective thing is you want this threat of a lawsuit of damages of um, being made to um, you know, pay for the harm you've, you've, you've caused you want that threat to um, to cause police departments and, and the government generally to be more respectful of constitutional rights, to, to be more vigilant to the rights of the people that they come into contact with. So it's, if we connect it back to like our conversation with the, that Eric and I were just having, let's say law enforcement uh, is monitoring a protest, ends up beating a protester, arresting them, charging them with resisting arrest, a bunch of bogus charges. They go to a criminal trial, all that is exposed. The case gets dismissed because there's nothing that could be introduced. Now all that evidence has been you know, surfaced. You have this bad actor. So what you're saying is like this federal lawsuit is you bring a federal lawsuit against this law enforcement agent. And what you're hoping is sort of like monetary damages uh, for that action, but that monetary damage is being a deterrent basically for future actions because people will know if I do this, it's gonna yeah. be, you know, a huge sum of money, right? Yeah, there's so many roles that 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 those monetary damages um, do. You know, it's there's like the the pure, you know, make the person whole, get get them some some redress for the harm that they suffered, and then there's also just the sense of vindicating a person's rights, having a court say, yes, your rights were violated, you did have a right not to be beaten like that, and the police officer violated those rights, and having a court say that is really important to people. Um, and then yeah, there's there's the the deterrent effect. You want you want this hanging over their heads so that when they are out there with their billy clubs at a protest, maybe they think twice before using them. So you say having a court say this. <laughs> so why can't we get courts to say this? I mean, like, what is preventing us? I mean, it seems like we've seen examples like the one I just hypothetical that I just mentioned, 
like over and over and over again across this country. Uh, but it doesn't seem like we can get courts to say, you know, that thing. So what, what is preventing us? Like you mentioned legal doctrines, like what are those? And, you know, like, let's start with, you know, qualified immunity. Yeah. So there are a number of these threshold doctrines and it's sort of an interesting story, you know, in the fifties and sixties, uh, the Warren court led by Earl Warren, um, interpreted the constitution to have a bunch of rights that, um, it hadn't been interpreted as having before, uh, including the right to public defense. Uh, and, uh, in the seventies and eighties, well, starting in the sixties, even they got cold feet. Uh, they realized that all these rights, people were coming to court to try to vindicate them. Um, and the government might actually have to start paying some damages for the harms. So as he sorts out the, the, the technical stuff, um, you know, I just find it so interesting, like, um, that, you know, the difficulty that's required in order to hold state actors accountable, like you would think, and, um, I mean, there's that theory behind it that you want state actors to be able to, to be able to move, operate and make decisions without fear of lawsuits, you know, like to be able to move quickly in a decision and not be able to prevent it to make like quick decisions because they're thinking about they're going to be sued for this. But yeah, I don't know. Is your, can you, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. I need new headphones. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So they, the, the Warren court got cold feet essentially and the courts after the Warren court. Um, and so they came up with these ways, these threshold ways in which even if a person's rights were violated and they would win on the merits um, of claiming that their right was violated, uh, a court can toss out the lawsuit for sort of non-merits reasons. Um, the most sort of famous of these now, it wasn't uh, until 2020, is qualified immunity. Um, and qualified immunity is this idea that uh, if a constitutional right isn't clearly established, then even if an officer violates your constitutional right, um, you, can't, uh, you can't move forward with the suit, you can't get redress for that. Um, it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird construct because for everyone else, if you violate the law, it doesn't matter how clear or unclear it is, the court will tell you what the law means and then it'll hold you liable for it, hold you guilty or you know, send you to a jury. Um, but for police officers, uh, there's a special rule uh, ignorance of the law, it turns out, is an excuse. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. So the idea is that if you violate the Constitution, but you didn't know that it was a violation of the Constitution, or it wasn't clearly established that it was a violation of the Constitution, you can't be held accountable, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and yeah. there's, there's an added twist here, um, because the way the Supreme Court has said this can be analyzed you can, the court can say something wasn't clearly established without even deciding whether there was a constitutional right in the first place. So what happens in, in such cases? That constitutional right isn't even clearly established in cases going forwards. So the next plaintiff that comes along whose rights were violated in the same way runs into the same problem where a court says, well, we've never said that right was clearly established. Uh, and so we're just not gonna say it's clearly, we're gonna say it's not clearly established again in this case, and once again, um, the the right will continue to be unclear. So, you know, like, I, I think like I'm scratching my head a little bit because I feel like, you know, it's, it's like one of those things where you're saying a circle is not a circle, but it is a circle, you know? And it's like, you know, it doesn't make any sense, but, um, but you know, and, and I think this is a problem like because, I mean, I, you know, as you were mentioning, like, or, you know, as we're alluding to, like, it's 
made by the Supreme Court. So this is a total construct that was just created out of whole cloth, right? All of these doctrines, almost all of these doctrines that um, public accountability fights are judge-made. Um, qualified immunity, um, the shrinking of the Bivens doctrine, something which is how you sue federal officers, um, something called the Monell doctrine, which um, basically makes it much harder to sue uh, a city entity or like a municipal entity than it is to sue uh, like a like a corporate, a private corporate entity. Um, all of these doctrines are judge-made. There are a few um, from Congress, uh, like the Prison Litigation Reform Act, with which I'm sure you're very familiar. Um, uh, but mostly, yeah, these are judge-made. And um, in theory, some of them Congress can undo. Um, and Congress was talking about um, weakening qualified immunity for a long time after, after George Floyd. Um, but in the, in the end, uh, I don't think they passed a, a bill at all, let alone a bill including qualified immunity reform. So, Bob, and I think there's an interesting thread here that kind of connects Othel's world and my world is that you know, another barrier he has, you have in, you know, if you have a client who was harmed by law enforcement and you're trying to seek damages is, I imagine, at least this is my understanding, is that if your client was convicted of a crime for that behavior, it's gonna be really hard for you to get redress for your client. And so one of the dynamics always at play is, and this is one of the things you're looking at as a public defender is, you know, why is this case being brought? You know, um, because it has been something I have witnessed firsthand that, um, you know, criminal cases are, are, you know, police officers don't file criminal cases, um, the district attorneys do, but because they have that unique partnership relationship, you're often wondering, you know, is this case being brought against my client in criminal court so that they don't have a financial remedy in civil court? Absolutely. You see that all the time. These are called HECBAR cases. Um, and you see that all the time where, for some reason, the district attorney pursued a bogus resisting charge. Like the, you know, the, the, the other constitutional violation um, might be apparent, but, and, 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 or, or maybe like no evidence was discovered, but, but the DA pursues this totally bogus resisting charge simply because if you are convicted of resisting, then um, at least under California, it, it varies from state to state, but then almost by definition, um, the officer's use of force was lawful. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like that interplay is critically important. And I do think that is some of the motivation or, you know, motivations for why you see like these cases being pushed so hard is to reduce the liability or prevent liability or accountability of officers. Um, you know, like you're mentioning like, again, like this judge made legal doctrines and that they can be um, overturned. And, you know, as I was just mentioning, you know, when we were throwing out the tech stuff is, you know, the, the intent behind sort of like immunity for public officials is the idea that they should be able to operate without the threat of being sued for everything that they made, that there's some, there's some sort of protection that gives them the opportunity to act more freely. We understand these to be like, you know, trust positions within our community um, and that, you know, likely they're going to make mistakes and that, you know, people shouldn't be sued left and right for those mistakes. Now, the intent on its face seems somewhat rational, but like, how has it played out now for like law enforcement in the sense of, you know, this idea of like, you know, things that we want to ensure people can act sort of, um, 
in, in these sort of like in these jobs or these professions that require, you know, these like kind of public decisions to what what's really emerged now as far as like the doctrine? Yeah, I mean, you know, that that uh, desire to shield officers um, so that they, you know, they don't feel chilled in performing their duties. I understand that. And it's a fair consideration and, and one that certainly needs to be taken into account. And it is taken into account in the substantive doctrine. And by what that what I mean by that is in the in the in ignoring qualified immunity, the excessive force calculus is whether the use of force was reasonable. Um, and that takes into account reasonable mistakes of fact, reasonable what the officer perceived. You can't um, you can't judge the the threat, for example, that the person posed in hindsight. You have to do it from the officer's perspective um, and taking into account only what the officer knew at the time. There's a lot of officer protective stuff built into the substantive Fourth Amendment standard. You don't need this extra layer of qualified immunity on top of that when you've got a, a reasonableness standard built into what it takes to, to, to make force excessive. And the same is true for searches. I mean, the, the, you know, the, 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 the touchstone of searches is that they have to be performed reasonably. Um, so you've got these protections already built in and then to, to, to double the insulation by adding qualified immunity on top of that, or you know, to, to you know, make it absolutely impenetrable by getting rid of the Bivens Doctrine and making federal agents immune entirely is unnecessary. It's not necessary to uh, fulfill the goal of shielding public servants from frivolous lawsuits. Yeah, I mean, you know, so what you're saying is like state law or constitution already has like those sort of standards built in. And then on top of those standards, we have this additional judge-made doctrine that basically makes it very difficult or if not impossible to really uh, bring lawsuits uh, in federal court against these actors. And so, um, yeah, I mean, so what do we do? I mean, like, what is it that you're doing to, to go after these doctrines? So what I'm doing is, um, you know, the, the way these judge-made doctrines develop, they, they develop in, in a common law fashion. There's there's an initial case where there's really egregious facts and the court says, well, you know, the officers did so and so in good faith. And so we're not going to hold them liable. And then it sort of metastasizes over time as, as stuff builds on top of it. Um, and then there comes along a case where the court says, you know, uh, instead of looking at the officer's subjective intentions, we should actually look at objectively whether or not the law was clear. And then it metastasizes further into this clearly established organ that we have today. Um, and what I'm trying to do is, is push back in the same way. Um, start building some, some building blocks of reducing the impact of qualified immunity, um, um, preventing it from metastasizing in, in bad cases, and you know, hopefully even curbing it a little in good cases. Um, and, and brick by brick, sort of you know, common law brick by brick, hoping to cabinet and, and make it have it make it have less force. Yeah, and, and I think it's like an incredibly important strategy because I think, you know, unless we can begin to hold law enforcement officers accountable or municipalities accountable with these financial damages or awards, you know, we're not gonna be able to change those behaviors that Eric was talking about that public defenders are encountering every day, right? Like, it's like this vicious cycle that that's occurring that 
you know, at the trial level without like a robust public defense system, you're not able to like prevent uh, convictions, um, uh, you know, by illegal or bad practices uh, by law enforcement. Um, and then you're not allowed to bring suit against them. And then if you are able to surface them, you have these doctrines that prevent that, then they continue that, you know, bad acting uh, and so on and so forth. So this is like this vicious cycle where, um, you know, unless like you have a robust public defense system and begin to chip away at these doctrines, you know, we're never going to be able to like fully stop uh, or prevent um, police accountability in, in a meaningful way, I think. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, there's, there's a, a huge need for uh, this, for, for this kind of work, both at the front end in terms of the public defense, and then also the back end in, in terms of what I do, trying to get accountability after the fact. Yeah. And as far as like federal courts, you know, we've been talking a lot about like state courts. We've had a couple episodes where we've sort of broken down like the trial process. But do you mind just like talking a little bit about the federal court and how that's different from state courts? Um, yeah, it's it's different in uh, it's different in a number of ways. Um, probably the way that's most um, relevant to the work I do is so I work mostly in, in the federal appellate courts. Um, and so what that means is if I get a good decision out of the Ninth Circuit, say, which is the circuit that Oregon is in, um, that doesn't just affect Oregon. That affects Oregon, California, Washington, Idaho, Nevada, Hawaii, Alaska, and Arizona. And I might even have left one out. That's, that's more than one-sixth of, of the U.S. population. Um, you, can, you can bring change to a whole lot of people very quickly if... If you if you make good law in a federal court of appeals, um, so that's sort of the the, the biggest difference. Um, there are there are all sorts of procedural differences, and um, you know I don't spend a lot of time in the state courts, so I don't know a lot about them. But the 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 biggest difference is I think um, well yeah the the two biggest differences are on the one hand I think uh, federal judges generally just lean a little more conservative. Uh, especially than Oregon judges. Um, but on the other hand, if you can convince them of something, especially at the appellate level, um, you can impact a lot more people. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things I always find interesting is, you know, the fact that um, federal judges are appointed. So I think that is the reason why they tend to be more conservative, because can they make it through the appointment process at, in right. federal Congress? Um, but, uh, but that also, like, if you can persuade them, and you have a good case because they're appointed as lifetime appointment, you know, they can do whatever the heck they want. <laughs> you know, like, right. You know, yeah. like in Oregon, the, 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 the court, the state court judges are elected um, yeah. and, and elected is like very generous, you know, because there's not very many contested elections. It's usually once you get in, it's sort of a, almost like a lifetime kind of a appointment to, to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the dynamic is quite like for state courts, but also there's, there's a, there's sort of a canonical, career path for federal judges, which, like you said, thoroughly impacts the kind of decisions they render in these cases. It's you spend some time at DOJ, uh, maybe at Maine Justice, then you do a stint in the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, maybe throw in some big law for good measures so you can donate to your senator so they bring up your name. Um, and by that time, you spent your time in big institutions working either for the government or for big companies. Um, and you've never, you've never represented an individual plaintiff, or maybe you did once when you did a pro bono case in your third year out of law school, uh, and that was it. 
Um, and that colors the perspective you have. If you spent, you know, most of your career in the U.S. Attorney's Office, you're not going to suddenly turn into uh, a, a, a someone who sees the defense side when you become a judge. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something like the Federalist Society has been very good at over the past um, three or four decades. They're a conservative, ideological, um, you know, uh, association that has done very well at populating the federal judiciary with that very conservative you know, what I would say, like narrow-minded and somewhat ignorant approach to originalism and things like that. And, you know, Biden, to his credit, um, is is actually appointing or nominating, um, you know, uh, judges that do have more diversity in their background, have public defense experience, more civil rights experience. So that's been good to see. But, you know, the federal courts, like you say, because they impact such a wide region, you know, at the appellate level, and even the district courts, you know, when they do their interpretations, is likely, you know, going to have broad impact. Um, you know, it's it's like the packing those courts with conservative people for generations now is, you know, the long lasting impact of that is going to be deep and profound. Um, and you know, I think as Eric mentioned, you know, at least for us, all of us are really just trying to avoid federal court on a host of different issues to try to litigate everything under state court because you know, federal judiciary is a scary place right now. Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump flipped three or four seats on the Ninth Circuit. I had a magistrate judge tell me in a settlement conference, this isn't your daddy's Ninth Circuit anymore. <laughs> uh, and he was right. It used to be a decent place to be a civil rights litigator. It is much, much less so now. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's only so much Biden can do. You know, you look at the you look at the roster and who's retiring and, and who's going to stick around for a while. And it's unlikely Biden's going to flip anyone on the Ninth Circuit. It's good that he's appointing some of these people with defense backgrounds. I mean, you know, the background that you have in the room matters, even if you do have, uh, a, you know, a conservative on the panel. Um, I'm just hopeful that, you know, hopeful that he'll, he'll get the chance in the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, I mean, I, I know there's so much more that I want to dig into as far as like, um, legal doctrines and things like that, we just scratched the surface and may may have left some people more confused because it, the legal doctrines don't actually make sense. So, you know, so it would be good to have you back to kind of dig into it more. And, you know, we've been talking about federal lawsuits and, you know, the vehicle for that typically is like 1983s. And we're going to have Juan, our civil rights director on um, in a couple of weeks to talk about prison litigation. And we'll talk more about, you know, what 1983 and federal civil rights litigations are. But I think, you know, having you on today to talk to counter sort of what Eric was talking about as far as the police accountability at the state level felt like a really good fit um, for the conversation today. But Eric, any any sort of like last thoughts or comments? Yeah, I, I you know, I have this magazine in my office. Follow it. It's a, it was produced after the 1968 Democratic Convention and it's a special edition magazine. It's, it's called Who Will Police the Police? And so like, there's not a lot of people who can do it. You know, it's public defenders and civil rights litigators. I mean, they're the only people really positioned to take on and hold law enforcement accountable. And, um, you know, if you have an underfunded public defense system or a judiciary that is uh, not inclined to hear these arguments, it's really difficult. Yeah. Any last thoughts, Arthur? Um Actually, uh, not relevant to what we were talking about, but what you were talking about before with CAP and the forensic uh, pathologists, a book recommendation uh, by a guy, Radley Balco, um, uh, The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist. Uh, really great book. I read it like on a single plane flight uh, 
across the country. Um, incredibly readable and just harrowing in terms of the crazy amount of power these these people wield. Yeah, I think it was co-authored by Tucker, who's a Innocence Project attorney um, out of. Oh, okay, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, Tucker yeah. Carrington. Um, I haven't read it myself, but I am familiar with it. Like, I just read all the summaries, which was <laughs> how, how I do most of my book reading these days. <laughs> um, well, you know, it was great having you on. Hopefully, we'll have you back on to talk more about these legal doctrines and some of the work, cool. and you know, um, maybe some of the victories that you do have. You could kind of explain what it means. Um, next week, we're going to have Ben Hale. He's a, um, a civil rights attorney with the Oregon Justice Resource Center, special counsel, um, and or senior counsel, I think is his title. He works on uh, impact and strategic litigation for us. And Anthony Pickens, who is formerly incarcerated, did 20 plus years at Oregon State Penitentiary, is also now a paralegal with us at the Oregon Justice Resource Center. But we'll be talking about solitary confinement um, and, you know, both from the perspective of us, we're actually uh, challenging aspects of solitary right now through litigation and Anthony from his own personal experience talking about like what, what happened to him and what his experiences were with solitary. So should be a pretty good conversation, both really um, compelling speakers and great, great thinkers. So um, uh, hopefully, you know, uh, 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 people listening will be around next week to listen to that. Um, but Eric, we didn't get to talk about the Trailblazers too much. I think it was All-Star Weekend, so not much happening. No, it was the worst dunk contest ever. Um, I think they probably end it after this year, and I didn't even watch the game. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't watch it either. I didn't watch. I just got like all these messages about like how, or yeah, about how bad it was. And then I was looking at like vintage like dunk um, contests and stuff like that. And I, I didn't even remember, but they actually had a dunk contest. I think I texted you that were for non basketball players. It was like athletes from other sports, and I totally forgot about that. And I was like, how cool would that be right now? like to have something like that yeah you know i mean there was a time when the nba was known as having the best all-star setup in sports and i don't know how many of the viewers here are interested in that but that's true and i think it's gone downhill it was not a good weekend and i didn't even watch it all right well hope thanks for listening and hopefully uh people will be back next week to join us for our conversation about um solitary confinement and thanks Bethel, for joining us and check out his website publicaccountability.org is that right Publaccountability.org. I couldn't get publicaccountability.org. What is it? Pub accountability. Publaccountability.org. I'm doing great work and um, we're happy to be like collaborating, supporting um, uh, his work. Um, yes, yeah, so we'll see you next week. I'm Bob and Singh. Uh, and I'm Eric Dietrich. And this is Trailblazing Justice.